in the movie of your life up to this point, if money were made a character, what role would it play? Would it be a hero, a villain, a frenemy? If you had to make it into a character, what would it look like? Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F-word. Welcome back to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. I am delighted you are here for another fascinating conversation. Today, I am thrilled to be talking to Dr. Sarah Newcomb. Dr. Newcomb has been someone that I've looked up to and followed online for a long time. To be able to have a conversation with Dr. Sarah Newcomb on the word money, which is a loaded word filled with complexities, was extremely enjoyable. Dr. Newcomb is the leading behavioral economist and the visionary behind the Thrive Financial Empowerment Center. Through her writing, speaking, and coaching, she tries to empower individuals from all walks of life to construct fulfilling lives with the resources they already possess. I feel like it's very attainable when it's structured in that manner. Dr. Newcomb's work and expertise has made a significant impact in the world of financial planning. She challenges us to look deeper beyond the dollars and cents to look at the complexities that the word money applies into our individual lives. She's worked with behavioral science teams at Hello Wallet, Morningstar, Edward Jones, and more. Dr. Newcomb's goal is to bridge the gap between academic research and practical financial solutions, which I think is fantastic. And we talk about that and amongst many other fantastic things on the episode today. Dr. Newcomb is the author of a fantastic book that I've read multiple times called Loaded, Money, Psychology, and How to Get Ahead Without Leaving Your Values Behind. Our conversation really speaks to this word money, which, as she says right in the title of her book, is loaded with so many nuances. In this conversation, we try to deconstruct those loaded meanings to the word money. And towards the end, we talk about her new venture, the Financial Empowerment Center, and living up to this idea that we can build a life you love with the resources you have. I encourage everyone to check out Dr. Newcomb's book and her website, thrive-financial.net. She is doing some wonderful things in our industry. Before we go to the conversation, if you've been enjoying the podcast, you can support the show in two ways. One is you can share this episode with a friend, family, colleague, or post it on social media. The other way is to head over to Apple Podcasts to leave a review and subscribe to the podcast. And now I hope you enjoy this fascinating conversation with Dr. Sarah Newcomb. Dr. Newcomb, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for coming. I am looking forward to today's conversation. 
I thought we would start with your book, Loaded, Money, Psychology, and How to Get Ahead Without Leaving Your Values Behind. This book, I have gone through it several of times and found so many benefits to it. But as I was reflecting for today, I couldn't help but think how much of your work of you went into writing this book and then how maybe difficult, I don't know if it was difficult, it was to come up with a title. So let's start there. Loaded. What's the significance of this word and why did you pick it for the title of your book? Yes. So it did take a little while to come up with the title. I was already in the process of writing the book and had just a working title at the time. I knew we needed to rework the title, but I I was fishing for something. I wanted something that would really convey the gist of what I was trying to get across about money itself and our complex relationship with money. And when Loaded came to me, I knew immediately that's it because, you know, you can read it in several different ways. Namely, a lot of people want to be loaded. People are trying to get loaded. It's uh, it's a big goal for many people. And yet money is probably the most loaded topic of all. I mean, we know that it's more uncomfortable. People are more uncomfortable talking about money than they are talking about sex and death. And those are not always comfortable topics. So money is money is a tough one. And it also, I think, conveys the way that we often each have conflicting relationships with money. We want it, but it comes with some other feelings involved. Thank you for that. When I first read the title, Loaded, you know, the word is, yeah, it must be lots in here. And as I was reading through it, your words, complex relationship with money, I really felt that as I was reading through the chapters. And as you're talking now, though, the word loaded, there are actually so many meetings that I didn't think about, but like I'll come back. Like I, people who go to the war loaded with a gun, they're emotionally, you can be loaded with emotions. Uh, if you have too much to drink, people call that loaded. All of which at times, I guess, destructive feelings can be portrayed through money. So it is complex. I, I want to focus on this complex relationship with money. Can you recall, I guess, I don't think there was one point in time, but when did you start to realize that there is this thing, as you quoted, a complex relationship with money, which I assume went before the book, but what was happening where you started to, I guess, find the words to say, wow, money's complex? Well, I sometimes wonder if I am a bit of an anomaly in the fact that I had and sometimes still wrestle through aspects of a very difficult relationship with money. I meet a lot of people who at least seem to be just fine and have no hangups, but I was not one of them. For me, money growing up did not represent opportunity. It was the opposite. Money was the reason why I couldn't follow my dreams. It was the reason why I couldn't do the things that I wanted to do in life. I mean, I got into one of the best schools for classical music and opera in the world and I couldn't go because my family did not have the money. And that's just one of the many, many, many experiences I had where money was a barrier to the things that I wanted to do in life. 
I mean, it chokes me up just thinking about it now. And I know that there are so many people for whom money is, you know, some people call it a necessary evil, but where life is more complicated than it maybe needs to be because of money and how it works. We look around at the world and we see that we live in a world of haves and have-nots. And I don't think you can not have feelings about that, especially if you're not on the top. And so I had a lot of bitterness and anger, internalized feelings of shame and being worth less because I had grown up without money. And by the time I was 28, and I, I had to wait until I was 24 to go to college because, like I said, my parents couldn't afford school and they were really worried. They were scared to sign on to debt for student loans. So I couldn't get them to co-sign for student loans to go to school when I was younger. But when you're 24 in the U.S., you can take out student loans without needing a co-signer. And at that point, I just enrolled in the local university that was down the street from my apartment. And I went in undeclared because at that point, I felt that I had aged out of the opera track. I know it seems silly, but it's kind of like gymnastics in that sense. You know, there's a certain career track. And if you don't get in by a certain age, you're you're often just not, you're, you've missed the boat. So I went in undeclared. I fell in love with math. I ended up getting a degree in math and I absolutely loved it. But at 28, here I was with a math degree and I still couldn't get my finances together. And at that point, I had to admit to myself that it wasn't about numbers because I get numbers. I love numbers and it's not problem solving. That's the aspect of math that I love the most. So there was something that did not have to do with logic or numbers that was interfering with my ability to manage my money. So for me, then I went and decided to study financial planning in graduate school because I thought that if I could just learn how the pros do it, then I could get out of the poverty trap that I was in. And then once I'd earned some money, I'd know what to do with it. But I ended up taking a course, an elective at Bentley University on psychology and financial planning. And it was taught by Jim Grubman, who is uh, one of the pioneers in financial psychology. And that was the class that changed the course of my life financially and also professionally. Because for the first time, we weren't talking about interest rates. We were talking about classism. We were talking about the anger and the shame and the guilt and the elation and the lust and the all the emotions that money brings with it. And I had never been in an environment where talking about how those things affect our day-to-day financial decisions, nobody had ever brought that to my consciousness as something to really think directly about. It was just really interesting because whichever environment you grow up with, whether the people around you love and worship money or just manage it really well, don't talk about it. Or in my case, where there was a lot of a lot of resentment toward the wealthy and a lot of attitudes about money and those who had it. And 
turned out I really needed to go deep inside to examine the core beliefs that I was carrying around with me. And that was what gave me the power to make life-changing changes in my finances. And I just became convinced that that I didn't want to manage other people's money. I wanted to help other people get unstuck from those unexamined beliefs that are holding them back. Thank you. I have so many different doors that we can go down. I don't know if I heard you or read a paper or a piece you wrote, but it was the Carl Jung quote, until you make the unconscious conscious, continue to... It will rule your life and you will call it fate. That's what I hear you saying here. Yes. You have this inflection point when you go to this financial psychology class and you explain the story of how you got there and you were able to receive that information. And earlier you talked about wrestling with those emotions. For people listening, how do we start the process to make that unconscious conscious? How do we start to lean in to wrestle with those very difficult emotions that you talked about, anger, shame, and so many other emotions that are associated in some form or another with money? The way I think about it is that in so many areas of our lives, we are taught to be mindful and think critically, except with money, where we're taught to just focus on the numbers and pretend as if there's no emotions or if emotions do come up that we're supposed to ignore them. But emotions are information. Emotions are the way that our subconscious minds communicate a whole lot of information to our conscious minds like shorthand for our subconscious. And so if we can learn to pay attention to the emotions, the emotional information that we're giving ourselves, then we can start to understand ourselves better and make our own unconscious conscious. There are some fun slash, you know, just interesting thought exercises that can get you started. I mean, it was... It was through doing the homework in that class that I started to examine my own relationship with money because the homework in that class required us to answer questions like, you know, what was money like growing up? If you had to distill your parents' core beliefs about money, what would they be? I think, you know, what's your gut response to how you would finish the sentence, money is blank. And pay attention to the emotions that come up because positive emotions generally tell us that's information that our fundamental needs are being met, in which case maybe you have a positive relationship with money, mostly. Negative emotions are information that tell us that one or more of our fundamental human needs are not being met or feel threatened. And so if any negative emotions come up with respect to money, you can start to ask yourself, well, what is it that in my, in my in go to Maslow's hierarchy, what is not being met? When I think about money, what are the needs that money or my financial situation threaten? I like the question because it's a little bit more lighthearted, but I think it can get us a long way. In the movie of your life up to this point, if money were made a character, what role would it play? Would it be a hero, a villain, a frenemy? If you had to make it into a character, what would it look like? I'm, I don't know if you're asking me, asking me but I'm going to answer it because tell I, me. I named him, I drew him, and wrote him a song, but his name's Mr. Shy. 
really? Yeah. When I was at Creighton University with Dr. Brad Klontz, of course, we did a similar exercise. And your quote, or not your quote, but the quote I've heard you say about the, until you the un, or until you make the unconscious conscious, that was my money story. And anyway, so yeah, Mr. Shy. Mr. Shy. Oh, Mr. I want to unpack that. I want to know so much more. <laughs> but yeah, I think I think you know whenever it's if you want to get started in understanding your core beliefs about money some of the best ways to get started are the next time you you feel an emotion associated with money, just try to stop and catch that and dive into it. Where are the roots of that emotion? There's also, you know, the stories that we tell ourselves about money, the things that we believe about money, about what it means to have it, what it means to not have it, the cultural stories that we pick up and, and take with us, the ones that we internalize, the ones that we don't. There's no simple answer with these things because each one of us has a very unique kind of collection of internalized stories and beliefs and core beliefs about money. Emotions can be a clue. And then the other thing I think is if you start to listen for money messages around you, there's sort of the very blatant ones, the kind of truisms, the, the statements about money, like money doesn't grow on trees or uh, money is the root of all evil, misquote, or, you know, money can't buy me love, right? Like whatever these, these statements that are like statements about money, but they're really statements about life and priorities. And those are all around us. So which of those did you grow up with? Which of those have you adopted? can give you some clues into your your financial values, but also then asking yourself, is it serving me well? And that's that's I think where where it comes, where the change can happen. I had to really face that the reality that a couple of really important people in my life who I love dearly and respect tremendously have really unhealthy relationships with money. And if I was going to get healthy in my own financial mindset, I was going to have to challenge some of the beliefs that I had adopted from them. And that was really uncomfortable because I love and respect these people. And so to say, I'm going to blatantly disagree with this perspective, it doesn't mean I start arguments with them about it, but you know, it can, it can be uncomfortable. And yet I had to ask myself, is this belief serving them? And it definitely wasn't serving me well, but it's not even serving them well. And so then I knew I was faced with a choice that I could either, because of my love and respect for them, continue on with this belief unchallenged and continue with the same patterns of financial stress and, and lack, or I could walk a different path and that's what I chose, but it did involve having to consciously challenge some of the beliefs of people I love and respect to this day. Again, I mean, wow, so many wonderful areas here. I want to talk about this walking a different path. And earlier in the conversation, you talked about being admitted or being able to attend this opera and classical university or college, but money, to use your words, money was a barrier. And while that feels like a fundamental truth, especially in that moment, it, it kind of, I guess I hear that it's also a story on one hand. So we we have these experiences that are seem so fundamentally true, but in a way, they're also a form of a story. 
maybe yourself in this case or others, how do people start to make sense of like, like, no, no, you, this is a truth. Look at it. We did not have enough money ver- and moving towards like enough curiosity and compassion to be like, wait, maybe this, you know, that was a truth then, but maybe not so true now. And mm-hmm. how, yeah, like maybe speak to your level of it. Was it curiosity? Was it compassion to yourself of how you turn that into like acceptance of, hey, that was a truth here, but not anymore. In this particular case, it was about, there is a a common disdain for wealth and money among people in the middle and low income groups. And I think, you know, there's many reasons for it. It's a psychological defense mechanism for one thing. And when you observe the injustice and the inequality in the world around us, it's very hard not to blame money and our financial system and economics and capitalism for for the inhumane state that many people live in. But there was a mental shorthand that I did that was a mistake where, because I didn't understand how money actually works, I just hated money, hated everything that had to do with it and sort of avoided dealing with it, thinking about it. And there was this sort of switch that I turned mentally where I just, and I know I'm not alone in doing this because I see people all around me. I hear the messages all around me. Then you, t- you start to take pride in not caring about money. Mm-hmm. You start to take pride in not prioritizing financial responsibility. You start to take pride in bucking the system that represents the things that you hate. But the systems that we built are just systems that we built. It's all human choice. Money itself is not responsible for inequality. Human choice is responsible for inequality. And so if you just hate money and all that goes with it, you might not ever build that great business that could help the world be a better place because you've decided you want nothing to do with money and capitalism, right? The point being that I was very black and white and Mm -hmm. a lot of us are very black and white because we love mental shortcuts. It's just easier to think that way. And so by rejecting money itself and the world of money and the idea of choosing a career path that would be financially viable, that it was somehow more noble to be a starving artist than to have a a career and a steady paycheck. You know, these are stories that we tell ourselves. Those are stories that I carried around with me. And those stories lead to all sorts of life choices. And not just, you know, what are you doing with your money, but are you willing to ask to be paid what you deserve? Are you even prioritizing learning about money and how it works so that you can use your resources to build a life that you love? I had demonized money and in doing so, shut myself off from the ability to use my resources to meet my needs. And I had to learn to think about money as an economist and to think about how I have a little personal economy that I'm running. And all economics is about is resources, resource management, and 
Some of those resources are financial and some of them are non-financial. And how do I take whatever resources I have and strategically use them to build my best life? And that, there is nothing in that that feels gross to me. I had to find a way to look at money management that aligns with my values and challenge some of the knee-jerk reactions I had had to money and wealth and people with it and all of that. It's a long answer. It's a great answer. And it gets me thinking, you said, be careful black and white. So I'm being careful not to be black and white here. (laughs) It makes me think of how, I guess, much richness there is in the journey of wrestling with those discomforts that you just spoke of to, or not challenging, I guess, observing why you, in your words, demonized money so that perhaps we can get closer to those values that you just spoke of without doing that. And I'd like to get your thoughts on this without doing that, perhaps we miss those authentic values. And now we're relying on stories that we've heard and best misquote ever of the Bible is like, I never knew, like, I always heard that, that money was the root of all evil. I, I only knew that quote is that way. But I bring that up because like I operated on because I had a bit of the same, like, oh, I don't need this money. I And that was one that I often thought, oh, money just corrupts people. Money's the root of all evil. Mm-hmm. And I guess my, my, my observation here is, is I wonder if we still get the same richness if we don't dive into the, the deep, dark waters of our relationship with money. Do we get to see those values or are we just relying on hearsay and other stories? Well, we all have a narrative about money, whether it's examined or not is up to us. Mm-hmm. And whether it's chosen by us or not is up mm. to us. Because if we don't decide to examine our own beliefs about money, then what we're basically doing is we're choosing to allow whatever we inherited from those who who influenced us up to this point to be our narrative good or bad, that's what's there. And I decided I wanted to be more mindful than that. And part of it was because, you know, being poor is exhausting. And I had been poor all my life. And here I was in my late 20s and starting a family. And I realized at that point that not learning about money was actually keeping me a slave to money. because by not learning enough to manage it well enough to be free of stress. I was then working at jobs I didn't like just for the money, which then sucks your soul. So you don't have the time to do the things you love. So it becomes a negative feedback loop. And the idea, you know, I don't, I don't remember who said it, that most, most people live lives of quiet desperation. That was true in my case. And I had to recognize that without, I don't believe our behavior changes until our thinking changes. And so, you know, you can white knuckle it all you want to try to make a new habit or or change something. But until you change the way you think, your behavior isn't going to sustainably change. And so it was little aha moments along the way. And then that became really a passion for me to help other people have their aha moments and little by little, just get free, get free of the things that 
the ways that we get in our own way. And it's going to be different for you than it is for me, but there are some approaches we can take to to finding those those little sources of self-sabotage. And, you know, there are real big systemic things that keep a lot of people from getting ahead. And I don't want to minimize that. I don't want to say mm-hmm. this is all about all, all you need to do is, is think prosperous thoughts and you'll mm-hmm. be fine. That is not true for a great many people. But I am a white woman who is well-educated in America and there was nothing stopping me but myself. And so for those of us that are not facing systemic barriers, we still often face internal barriers. There's a great book called The Mountain Is You. And it's about changing self-sabotage into self-mastery. And that's what this is all about. We are often our own worst financial enemy. And it often has to do with deep unexamined beliefs about money or about ourselves. You know, the word deserve is maybe one of the most loaded mm-hmm. words ever. But yeah, I, it's just about saying, I don't want to, cont- something about this is not working. And the only way to really change is to change your thinking. So you've got to just start to examine what is it in your thinking that is not working, that is not serving you. I find it really interesting, that comment, until the thinking changes, the behaviors don't. I mean, I've found that for my own journeys that, yeah, without changing that thinking, no matter what, like that fake it, I'll make it just didn't necessarily work for me. And in fact, it almost creates this opposite effect. It's like, oh, oh, why hasn't the thinking changed on the outside? I'm looking good, but yeah, I, I think that's a really, really good comment that then transfers to this idea that you said, build my best life. And I, I, I look at the work you're doing now and around financial or em, empowerment education. And I, I really appreciate the word you chose, empowerment. Maybe let, let's touch again. I'm going to pick on words that you picked here, but I think the word, they have so much loaded meaning in every word. Yeah. Maybe speak to this idea of empowerment education because I think you're 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 bringing in so many interesting things, mental health, finance, but then this empowerment. So yeah, speak to that word. Yeah, Thrive is my new business venture, Thrive Financial Empowerment Center, and it's funny. I was noting today that ever since I chose this name in February, and I've seen it everywhere since. There's so it's, <laughs> it was probably there before, but it definitely feels like a zeitgeist that we're finally realizing that empowerment is important when it comes to finance. So the reason why I think financial empowerment is so important is this link between mental health and financial health. There are so many of us that experienced generational poverty rather than generational wealth. What happens in studying the psychology, I'll try not to be too long-winded about this, but in studying the psychology of something called learned helplessness, which sounds like a victim mentality, but it's very different, okay? There's a victim mentality, which is a really unhealthy way of thinking where you get into this thing called a drama triangle and you make yourself the victim and you want someone else to rescue you. It's very unhealthy, It's, it's terrible. And it leads to all sorts of problems in life and relationships. But learned helplessness is different. Learned helplessness is not that you make yourself a victim. Learned helplessness is that you have learned through experience, through evidence-based experience, that you cannot change your situation, that you do not have power to change your situation. One of the great illustrations of learned helplessness comes from the seminal experiment that 
the researchers who first brought this out did with dogs in the 70s. It's really cruel, but it's very poignant. So they took a bunch of dogs and they put them in electrified cages where the bottom of the cages would randomly shock the dogs and it was uncomfortable. And there was a button in the cage that the dogs could push. And for some of the dogs, the button opened the door and they could get out. And for other dogs, the button did nothing. And so in the first part of the experiment, they watched these dogs and the do- and they were basically training some of the dogs that they had power over their circumstances and training the other dogs that they didn't have power over their circumstances. And so they trained these dogs in to believe something, to believe a story about the power that they have in their life. Then they put all the dogs in cages where the buttons worked. The dogs that believed that they could change their situation did. They pushed the button, they left. The dogs that knew that they didn't have power, they didn't even try, they just laid down. And it makes me so sad. The experimenters had to go in and actually like physically move the dog's legs to get them to leave the cage. And they didn't have to do it once. They had to do it over and over again to reprogram their belief because they they knew from lived experience that they didn't have agency, that they could do nothing to change their situation. That is a deep, disempowering narrative that many people live with when it comes to money. And whether it's because they're, they grew up in a situation where their parents didn't have power or in a previous situation, they didn't have power. It doesn't matter if now they do have agency, if now they can fix it, because they have internalized through learned experience that they don't have power. And so to me, I believe that there is this real epidemic of disillusionment around money as income inequality grows and as cost of living rises, I think it's only getting worse that people are starting to just feel like I talked to some young people last week and these are bright young people going to the University of Vermont. And when they were asked about, you know, what they thought about getting a job after after college, they 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 were scared. I could hear the fear in their voice. And they were like, one of them said, you know, I have no expectation that I will be able to make a living. And I spoke with them afterwards and said, I really want to talk with you. I really, I, you know, I really, I really want to want to help you with this because the level of fear and stress that our young people are feeling about their economic prospects is worse than ever. And if you look at the mental health stats around youth mental health and financial stress, it's, it's really bad. And I don't think we can fix that by teaching kids about compound interest. I think we have to teach kids that they have power in their own life. And that's what empowerment-based financial literacy is about. It's not in there going in and saying, if you have $1,000 and you invest it this way, in 10 years, you'll have whatever. That is meaningless. That is absolutely meaningless. And I think you get a lot of people who they're not even listening because that they've already bought into the story that they can't win this game. So why teach them the rules of a game that they can't win? So I think we've got to approach financial education from a human empowering place that says, 
This isn't about numbers. This is about resource management. You have resources, time, energy, intelligence. You have those things. You can turn those into something valuable in your community. You can turn those into income. How do we do it in a way that lights you up? How do we take your resources and turn them into assets in a way that lights you up and serves your community? Now we've got a great creative problem-solving exercise on our hands, but there's hope. It's infused with hope and agency and personal choice. And it's not about, I have to go out there and scrape for dollars that are scarce. It's about, I can create value because of who I am. That's what I want our next generation to feel, that they can build value, not go out and get money. Wow. I mean, it touches on exactly what you're talking about is like, if we don't change our thinking, then the behaviors are difficult. And if we know that there's this learned helplessness going on that we all can relate to, I love what you're doing until we get into the underbelly of those stories of why there's this lack of hope. It's hard to fix. And I think it's wonderful. And you could feel your passion. This is well, Your comments comes, was lighting me up. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and and I think it goes back to, you know, my story. I missed out on on a deep dream. And I know that there are kids out there that are looking at their life right now and feeling like, you know, they're following this script that life has given them that they have to get an education, they have to get a job, they have to this, that, and the other thing. And we all know at this point, we all know how unfulfilling that is. And I believe that every generation is wiser than the last. And this generation has the benefit of of the wisdom from all previous generations that's, that have told them, you know, they don't, they don't want to become a, a lemming behind a desk um, working for the, for the gold watch. They, that has no appeal to this generation. And I think that's their wisdom, but what's a better way? That piece, the way that we teach about money is so much in the old paradigm and hasn't caught up to something I, I think we need a more flexible knowledge. That's why I think it's resource management because it's not just money management, it's resource management. Maybe your greatest resource is your social connections. Maybe it's, you know, who knows what, but it's learning how to take your resources and turn them into assets. And I just think that that's so innately empowering because any one of us can do that wherever we are. And then all these stories of what has been and what has to be and the way you're supposed to do things, they hold less weight because you can start to see, you can start to imagine how you might make something different happen. But I mean, there's a lot of work to do. There's a, there's a lot of work to do. You know, but it starts with people like yourselves in a way, maybe that was a process you went through starting Thrive is that recognizing that, hey, this is the next chapter of my story that I I need to have these empowering conversations. You know, when you talk about this old way of education where it was information, give information, 
I've heard you talk a lot about these this resource management and the assets we have in ourselves around the way you've talked about budgeting. So when I say the old way of budgeting is, you know, here's this restrictive diet. Maybe just touch on the the loaded way or however you yeah. want to call it. Your yeah. Sarah's lens of budgeting. Yeah, I I call it the needs and strategies approach um, or budgeting with Maslow. So you know, the most financial educators are taught and most of us have heard, you know, that if we want to be good with money, then, you know, with budgeting is about knowing the difference between a want and a need. And that is a very disempowering and psychologically harmful framework. I, I'm sorry, I don't like to interrupt. When I heard you first talk about this, a want is a need, I just loved it. So anyways, I, I yeah. couldn't contain it. Anyways, <laughs> sorry. Well, and I can't, I can't take credit for it because it's it's actually Marshall Rosenberg who founded the non, the Center for Nonviolent Communication. And mm-hmm. I trained in nonviolent communication for several years. And it's just nonviolent communication applied to money. That's all it is. But it, it is, it's very powerful. Uh, it's changed my life and I think it's changed many others. So the idea is that everything that we do with money or otherwise is an attempt to meet a fundamental human needs. And you can find your human, you can find all of the fundamental human needs on Maslow's hierarchy. We have our survival needs and our safety needs and our needs for belonging and connection and esteem from ourselves and others and self-actualization. And even though it's called a hierarchy of needs, it's only a hierarchy in so much as what Maslow called prepotency, which just means that if none of your needs were met, then you'd care first about survival before the others. But as soon as your survival needs are met to some extent, then your other needs become more salient. And in fact, it's not like, you know, you have to meet all your survival and safety needs before you meet your needs for belonging. We flip the hierarchy on its head all the time. People risk their safety for belonging, you know, all the time. Or, you know, when they text and drive, for example, <laughs> you know. So we do this all the time that that our higher order needs, often we meet those at the expense of lower order needs. The point is that higher and lower, isn't, it's not about importance. And in fact, Maslow himself said, he said, who am I to say that love is less important than vitamins? And he said that anyone who's deficient in any one of the categories could be said to be unwell. And we know this from experience. You know, yes, we can survive without belonging, but we don't want to. Loneliness is one of the the most unpleasant states that humans can be in. And it often leads to suicide. So we need belonging and esteem and self-actualization in order to feel that our lives are worth living in order to feel that our lives are are good. So it's not Maslow's hierarchy of wants. It's Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And when we say you have to know the difference between a want and a need, operationally, basically what we're saying is if it's not survival or safety, it's a want. So then what happens is that people are, they try to be responsible. And so they go and they look at their expenses and they slash things that are wants and not needs. But what they've done is they've now taken a strategy for meeting some important need and they've erased it from their lives. And they've so they've literally made a plan to feel deprived. And so budgeting as we know it is literally making a plan to feel unhappy. 
And we do it because we're sold the idea that we'll be unhappy today so that we can be happy tomorrow. But what happens when you don't meet your needs? Do they just go away? Do they say, oh, okay, I guess I'm just not going to be satisfied. I, you know, no, they, they, they scream at us until we find some way to meet them. And so I think that the healthier approach to budgeting is not to know the difference between a want and a need, but to understand the difference between a need and a strategy for meeting a need. And that subtle difference, again, in language makes a huge difference in how you think. And then that can change your behavior. So for example, let's say I was talking to someone this morning whose wife loves clothes shopping. And I was like, I can absolutely relate relate to her. And, you know, she has this need. She wants to feel confident. She loves beauty. She wants to belong in a certain tribe. She wants, our clothes are their self-expression, right? So they can be, for some, their fashion is is a ticket into, into certain social circles. You know, like there are deep human needs that clothes are meeting for her. And yet she couldn't afford the you know, just going and buying new clothes all the time to stay fashionable. And she's been doing Rent the Runway. And and I asked him, I, I, I mean, I'm not using names, but I hope you wouldn't mind me sharing that. I said, does it seem like it's meeting her need to feel fabulous? You know, and he said, yeah, it really, it really is. And so the idea is you don't just cut an expense because it's a want. You first say, what's the need that I'm meeting? And how can I come up with a new strategy that meets the need completely and costs less money? And so then budgeting becomes an exercise in figuring out how to live a life that you love within the constraints of the resources you have. Remembering that our needs for safety Psychological safety is about knowing that your your survival needs will be met today and in the future. So saving is a safety need. So how do you make sure that your strategies for getting all your needs met don't conflict with one another? That's the needs and strategies framework. Just basically honor the needs because they're real and you will not be happy unless you have a plan for meeting them the strategy that you use to meet them could be financial, could be non-financial. That's all, that's all flexible. But the need is fundamental and universal and very real and should be honored. I think it's such a important and critical conversation. And like, I'm a financial planner by background. And as you're talking, I'm thinking like, geez, I don't think our E&O insurance has insurance to cover the psychological impacts we give someone when we cut out all their like their internal needs that they actually have when we see them as expenses and set them sail on the journey of life for them to realize at 65 they went to the wrong island because I told them to go that way. And like like I'm just thinking like a busy couple with young kids maybe eating out is 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 this connection or belonging or even up to safety as a coupleship and they only see it as eating out. And if you just slash that, that, that expense line, you might be losing something more. Mm -hmm. I, I really appreciate that lens that you take towards, towards budgeting. Well, thank you. I do think it's important that we don't use it as a justification to just go and overspend, Yeah, you know, and, and it's, it's tempting to say, oh, well, this is a need I need, but, but that's why it's really important to also understand that 
a need is one of those deep fundamental things on Maslow's hierarchy. And mm-hmm. one of the things that Marshall Rosenberg taught in nonviolent communication as shorthand for recognizing if something is a need or a strategy is if everybody in the world couldn't have it at once, then it's a strategy, not a need. Mm, okay. Um, so for example, a car is not a need. Even if you need transportation to work, a car is not a need. You don't need a car. You need transportation. That's a survival need. And you never need someone else to do something. Like it's it's a need is it's fundamental. It's universal. It's the same for everyone everywhere in every culture. We all need these things that we can find on Maslow's hierarchy. The strategies are what we get fixated on, and it's the strategies that we that we need to change. But so you know, saying, "Well, I need." I talked to someone years ago. She was like, "Well, what about like I'm going to give a new speech? I or I'm going to give a talk, and I need a new dress." I'm like, no, you don't need a new dress. You need to feel confident. Mm-hmm. You need mm-hmm. to be confident on stage. But going, finding, get taking that step to recognize the need is never a thing. Mm-hmm. The need is, the need is on Maslow's hierarchy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and that when I was talking about the people eating out, like the need would be that connection, but you can get that by sitting on your front porch or your backyard. Exactly. And without it examining more planning. Yeah. Without examining it, then you may just end up having more, you know, dinners in front of the television or haphazard at things then it may interrupt like the quality of your family life. And so that's why it does take more effort to budget this way. You know, it's not, it's not for the faint of heart, but it can be absolutely life-changing if you want to give it this level of thought. I've just found, you know, it's so much more satisfying, so much more satisfying because then you're also not playing this game with yourself where you're saying, you know, I'm, I'm going to feel okay because right now I'm sacrificing. Mm-hmm. And we all, you know, hear the story about the the people who like they retire and then they die the next day, right? And there's so many tragic times when people put off their life for financial reasons. And that's not the goal of money management. The goal of money management isn't to delay life and to delay uh, gratification. We've got to find ways to live well now and in the future. And the only way we live well is by satisfying all those needs. But we generally can find ways to satisfy most of our needs with non-financial strategies if we're creative. So interesting when you do a thought experiment with people, when describe a day if you were retirement or if, if you're retired or if money doesn't matter. And while there's nuances to it, but often it's like one exercise, hanging out with someone, having a coffee, and you're like, do the tally, how much does it cost? You're like, it's not that much. Like, it's really interesting. So I I see the time here. And I also really like the word choice to thrive. I mean, if we look at thrive, it's to flourish. And you're talking about money, which is not always associated with flourish and money is not always associated together. And you also have like financial coaching in Thrive. I want to, what if anything at all is the link between this financial coaching approach versus you could have went down the financial therapy, financial planning, but you picked financial coaching. What link, if any at all, does your idea of thriving have with financial coaching? 
Yeah. So the tagline for for my for Thrive is a life you love with the resources you have. And I think that's, you know, it encompasses some therapy, some financial therapy at times. Sometimes it's budgeting, sometimes it's financial planning. But what it really is about is this idea. It's it's more coaching and saying, where are you? And what would thriving look like for you? What would it feel like for you? And then how do we get you there? And again, like, how do we get you so that you're thriving right now? You're self-actualized today. And you know that you're walking on a path that is most likely to allow you to continue thriving in the long term. And thrive, again, it was, it took me a long time to come up with it, went through many different ideas. But when, when I finally hit on thrive, it, I knew it was right because that is what the goal is. And I also think that, you know, we, by definition, we cannot all be rich. Everybody can't be at the top. And I know we can say, well, what is wealth really? And it's quality of life. Mm-hmm. We can all thrive. Mm-hmm. And that's the goal. I, I really want to work with people who, I mean, there are so many services out there to serve the wealthy. That That is not a space that needs more, that needs me. But I feel like the people who are striving right now and maybe in survival mode or even chaos, getting to that place of thriving, I believe it's totally possible. And yet sometimes we need a sounding board. Sometimes we need a cheerleader. Sometimes we need someone to check our unhealthy thoughts. And I just want to help get people from wherever they're at to sustainable thriving and a life that they love with the resources they have. So that's that's what I'm doing with Thrive. It's it's so much fun. I can hear the enjoyment through the your tone of your voice and I appreciate your journey and what you're doing your vision cuz how accessible does that feel to create the life you love with the resources you have as opposed yeah. to get this much resources then you can retire in 30 years and or <laughs> the one quote I just it hurts me is when I'm going to do the things people don't do today so I can do the things people can't do later or something like that. It's been around right. the delayed gratification. Yeah, yeah. So, so I really love what you're doing. I see the time here. I have asked everyone this question. Let's imagine you are at end of life, however old that is, it is. And you're sitting on a front porch, looking out at something that brings you peace, ease, and contentment. Maybe it's in Vermont. And you decide to bring out a notebook to write a letter to your children's children on what you learned is a key element to having a happy and healthy relationship with money. What would be a theme to that letter? It would really be about defining success for yourself, letting your dream come from within, because that's what's fulfilling. And if you're living someone else's dream for your life, even when you get there, you won't be happy. There's no number that satisfies unfulfilled dreams. Wow. If my mic wasn't on the stand or yours wasn't, I feel like that's a mic drop. That was, that was, thank you for that. I'm going to sit and think about those. Yeah. And for me, I mean, I, I can see it. My dream is a little house on a big plot of land with some fruit trees and a big garden where I spend a lot of my time with my hands in the dirt 
and just, and I want to keep bees. And I'm just a couple years away from, from this. And my husband and I are, are dreaming it up and, you know, looking, scouting it out and saving for it. And, you know, I, the life I live right now is very close to it without the land and just finding that spot where, where I'm going to put, literally put down roots and learn to preserve root. And um, I love the dream and I don't care what other people have. I know what will make me happy. The last statement I feel like is the, a testament to this work that you're talking about is really, yeah, I wrote it down here, success or letting your dream come from within. And you just said it there. You don't care what other people feel. And too often we go through life caring too much what other people think. And we design these lives that aren't actually ours. So thank you so much. I really, really appreciated this conversation. For people interested to learn more about yourself, where would you point them towards online? Um, you can reach me at Sarah with an H at thrive-financial.net. And I'm also on LinkedIn. We will include those in the show notes. And thank you so much. I really appreciated this. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Thank you for tuning in this week. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. As I mentioned earlier, I encourage you to go get a copy of her book. It is fantastic. If you enjoyed this conversation, I would highly encourage you to check out episode number 38 with Dr. Sarah Acevedo. Our conversation was around financially functioning to flourishing. If you're still listening, perhaps that means you enjoyed the show. If that's the case, you can support the podcast in one of two ways. You can head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review and subscribe to the show, or you could share this episode with a family, friend, or colleague or anyone you think who might benefit from the conversation. Thank you very much for tuning in. Until next week, have yourself a good one. I'm on a mountain without a top. My wealth is measured and now I spend my time. But now I write a freedom story with every breath inhaled. Money is not the boat of life. It's just the wind in the sea.